Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the May 23rd, 2023 edition of Ask a Leader. Finally, finally, Irvine, the largest city in California to have at-large city council members, is transitioning toward creating distinct city council districts from which the candidates would run. The city will also add two seats to the city council. Our guest for the full hour is demographer Justin Levitt, retained by Irvine's city council. He'll lay out the process underway wherein the city of Irvine is drawing these six council districts for the voters' approval on spring 2024's primary election ballot. The November 2024 general election ballot would include voters in four of those districts. So we'll talk about drawirvine.org all over the place in this full hour segment. Residents can hang out over there. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. My guest for the full hour is Justin Levitt, formerly a professor in political science at Cal State University, Long Beach, and currently the vice president of the National Demographics Corporation. Justin Levitt has been appointed by the Irvine City Council to oversee the districting process, creating city council districts to represent six areas around the city. He's built this career since his senior thesis on redistricting. He's consulted with the city of Anaheim. That was a two and a half year process and various projects in San Diego. He was a Jesse Unruh Assembly Fellow and was affiliated in various research capacities at the Rose Institute of State and Local Government in Claremont, California. Justin Levitt completed his Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at Claremont McKenna College and his PhD in Political Science at the University of California, San Diego. He comes to us today from San Diego. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Dr. Justin Levitt. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, thank you. First, I do want to take stock of the fact that Irvine, estimated at this moment to be a population of 322,000, is the largest city in the state of California to have at-large city council elections. That's correct. We've seen a lot of the large and medium-sized cities uh, around the state switch to district elections in the past 15 years. And Anaheim, what you worked on, took the prize at 340,000 population during the 2013-2016 process. And the other thing I want to very clearly point out, it's my advised word choices that I will be making distinctions between voters, constituents, and residents. And boy, do demographers understand that. So well, I'm always wanting to be, though, as inclusive of all of the inhabitants, and that's why constituents are what I, I want to make that distinction about. So just in your particular role, you're involved in the process, you're steering clear of the political, and that's a pretty prickly part of your work with municipalities that retain you. Is that not? 
Oh, you know, it is. And uh, of course, I would say the political is always in the background. Um, we try to focus the process on what is good for the residents of Irvine, the constituents in the city of Irvine. It doesn't mean that there aren't political noise in the background, political forces in the background trying to shape this process. But really, our job is to stay above all of that and look at the maps and kind of the factors that go into the redistricting process more objectively, more critically, uh, and bring a take of an outsider without knowing all the politics of the community, without knowing all the details of, of the political drama of the city, um, and provide advice for the council and for the community to make the best decision possible. But the, I mean, you surely do spring traps of the drama, though, that you're probably, and we're not going to ask you to unpack any of that, but I'm sure it comes through the the water supply. <laughs> you can't help it. You know, and every, every town, of course, has their own factors. Um, you know, uh, for example, a lot of cities like to say, oh, we're not going to consider where incumbents live at all. And then you get every map drawn that, because uh, of course, residents will know where their council members live. Uh, it's public information available to anybody who uh, requests it. Um, so, of course, uh, people will draw maps with that in mind, whether or not they're explicit about it or not. So I want to bring listeners along with the notion that the six districts dividing up the city of Irvine would mean 50,000 persons, plus or minus, you know, a couple, a hundred or thousand, 50,000 people will be, how many people will be within a district and also, to clarify for listeners, this is all based on census data, not voters registrars eligibility, because I'm I'm hearing that, Justin, and I'm sure you sure. keep hearing that, too. And I'll take a step back and say that, you know, the state projects Irvine's population currently to be at about 322. Um, this, this, the 2020 census, which is the number that we have to use as part of this process, counted the population at about 309,000. And so that's the actual number that we use uh, when we're looking at the redistricting or drawing districts in the first place. Uh, we divide that number by six, and each of the six districts should get about 51,000 registered voters. I say give or take. We know it's not going to be perfect. Um, and I should say, clarify, it's not just registered voters, it's everybody. It's everybody counted as part of that census count. That includes people staying in the dorms at UCI, that includes children, it includes non-citizens. That really is the reflection of what the Supreme Court has called the one person, one vote principle and has repeatedly affirmed even as late as 2016 is at the heart of what representation is about. And we all remember the census was taken during the early stages of the COVID pandemic and students scattered away from these particular areas that you're carving up. So it's it, it's a movie thing. And I and I was very clear that it's based on census, not on voter registration eligibility. I, I wanted to be clear about that. And you're you're making sure I'm clear about that. And well, I, it is something a lot of people get confused about. Yes. Of course, uh, we all think about elections as being about registered voters. But the, the courts have really made it clear. And actually, you know, also it's also in state law now that when we talk about population, we do include everyone. And that's one of the, I would say, even advantages of district-based representation. 
is that you are representing people are you, who come from areas that are high have higher citizen non-citizen populations a higher percentage of people under the age of 18. Uh, you don't underrepresent college students living in the dorms as much as you do if you only take into account registered or actual turnout you know some people have wanted to do and that's why i'm using the word constituent so everybody's represented in their city government so that's and i wanted exactly. to run by some numbers so university hills is about 3800 well let's say i'm rounding up 3900 are in university hills the main campus is about 3000 mesa court is almost 4500 the verano graduate housing is around 6300 the arroyo drive and housing is about 7400 residents constituents and the university town center is about just under 2000 and the mason park adjacent housing is around 1300 the turtle rock for comparison the turtle rock planning area is about 11,000 overall. So these are some numbers that start to fill in what would a 51,000 person district look like. Just want to put that out there. So did did you want to say something to those stats? Yeah. So of course, all of these numbers for different communities, different planning areas, they do go toward that 50,000 count, regardless of whether they are uh, there for four years or there for the entire decade. Um, and you can think of it, especially in dorms, as saying that, you know, I think there are about 25,000 people we counted on UCI's campus, or at least the planning area. There will be about 25,000, regardless of whether they are the same 25,000 this year and, you know, five years in the future. Okay. Um, and future students deserve representation when they're here in the city, just as much as the current students do. Okay. And we have covered the state's redistricting commissions, redrawing the legislative district maps. And many of those criteria are there. They're quite similar because it is the Voting Rights Act that has to comply with. So uh, for drawing those municipal districts, the cracking and the packing, the equal number of constituents inside a given districted area, the communities of interest. So in just a short order, could you tell us what are the criteria as people fan out and they participate in drawing their own districts as a submission. So what should they just in a rapid sure. fire, those criteria? I, I know and, you do that all the time in the elevator. Specifically mention the Fair Maps Act of 2019 here, because that's where these local city criteria come from. Um, so in addition to equal population and following the Federal Voting Rights Act, we also have to consider contiguity. Uh, making sure each district is one piece or one whole area that with one exterior boundary. Uh, we also have to consider communities of interest and neighborhoods. The law says that they have to be kept together for the purpose of their fair and effective representation. That's a point we're going to come back to in this conversation, so I won't say more about it yet. The third criteria is following natural boundaries major roads, waterways, planning areas, or school district boundaries, other sorts of boundaries that would be very easy for people to understand which district they live in. And the fourth is compactness, which the law defines as not bypassing one group of people to get to another group of people. Uh, mostly this is aimed at hooks and fingers. It could also be aimed at districts that only touch at a specific corner or specific point. 
districts should make sense to somebody looking at them on the map uh, who knows the community. And, and actually that knows the community can be a very uh, interesting point because there's oftentimes lines that make sense to residents that don't uh, outsiders just looking at the map and may think a line is weird. Then of course, we have a ban in the fair maps as well on considering politics or political considerations like partisanship. Um, and so that's something we take very seriously as part of our analysis. And then finally, there are other criteria that can be considered, but are considered optional, or maybe you could say that they're the final balance between two maps we think do a very good job. And those would be factors like which districts are going to have more growth over the next 10 years, or how did the two maps we're looking at affect the current um, members of the council. And the courts have allowed those kinds of considerations. Um, under state law, they're allowed as that kind of last balance test between two equally good maps. Okay. So, for those of you who just joined us, my guest for the full hour is Justin Levitt, formerly a professor in political science at Cal State University Long Beach, and he's now the vice president of National Demographics Corporation. He's the demographer retained by Irvine's city council, laying out for us the process underway. It's now happening, folks. That's why we're doing this interview. Underway, dividing the city of Irvine into six council districts for the voters' primary approval. That would be for next the spring primary in 2024, and the next general elections vote on, I believe it will be three of those six districts. So let's then, how does Irvine stand out to you as a city undertaking this project? The neighborhood communities, the high integration of all incomes, ethnicities, and everything all over the entire town. How does Irvine strike you as you're getting more and more acquainted with all of the the forums that you're participating in and leading. Yeah, every city we work with is unique in its own way. Uh, but I would say specifically here in Irvine, uh, we have some very interesting boundaries that already exist. The planning areas, the villages, the homeowners associations um, all have very clearly defined areas. And some of them are quite large. Some of those uh, communities are upwards of 30,000 residents. In addition, uh, we also have as much diversity in some ways as many larger cities. So questions um, that affect some parts of the community, how uniform, how, how consistent do we see those across the entire community? One of the big concerns that we have already been hearing from the community, for example, is just how the university is treated, UCI. Um, we've seen a lot of community members even suggest the very specific boundary that they would like to see um, between the university and neighboring communities like Quail Hill and Turtle Rock. And all of that does make it provide a bit of a challenge. On the diversity within the city, uh, the city, Irvine, like many cities, looks very different by total population than it does by what the Voting Rights Act requires we look at. Uh, which is that population over the age of 18 with U.S. citizenship. Some, some courts like to call this the eligible voter population. Um, and the city is plurality Asian American uh, by total population, but not by citizen voting age or eligible voter population. And so where we see those differences and where we see different communities of Asian Americans throughout the city uh, is something that we are very much paying attention to 
especially what we hear from those communities themselves. Well, I want to push you a little bit about the university, and that is not a monolithic demographic. There, right? There's students, and I, I heard them at the May's, May 9th city council meeting, and they're they have an identity as students. And then there is the university is there are residents surrounding the university. So um, it's I can't I, when I hear you say the university, I think of many things at once. And when I was preparing for this interview, I had to split that identity uh, that I had to sort of make some distinctions about what the university means with people that are very high level involved in this. So I want to push you on that a bit. Sure. And, you know, um, I think this is, it, it's something that is, we very much see, uh, you know, there's, you know, there's a, there's a large student population, not just on campus, but also in several neighboring property blocks, apartments, um, and other high-density multifamily housing areas adjacent to the university. But it's certainly correct that faculty housing, grad student housing, even just a lot of young professionals who maybe have graduated but have taken a job locally um, do stay in the area while well, during the early years of their employment. And, and that is something that uh, can you know, serve to unite a community in some cases, but also can serve to perhaps, as you said, not be nuanced enough to get at the real distinctions within those neighborhoods. Right, um, and and it's sort of like interest versus identity. And so they could all have a similar interest, but maybe they don't identify with some other neighborhoods that might be included in a city council district. So it's that's part of the nuance when we look at those two different distinctions. That's correct. And, and one of the things that we are paying attention to is the fact that when we talk about that those the university itself and some of the neighboring communities, we're not just looking at, oh, where do we see college students living? We're, we're looking at places that are affected by the same issues, concerns, problems, even challenges, if you want to think of it that way. Um, and so, Things like where do we see multifamily high-density housing versus more single-family housing? Um, because neighborhoods that are made up of high-density housing tend to face different issues relating to traffic and community and lifestyle than neighborhoods made up of single-family housing. And rental kinds of terms. That, that was very evident in the, the opening of the pandemic is where some people needed to break some rental contractual things. And it, it mattered because the city had a kind of a advocacy role about how to give leverage to those tenants with those kinds of complications. So it, it was a deal. It was a thing. And we've also heard about how certain bus lines and mass transit mm -hmm. routes have been curtailed in high density neighborhoods around the university uh, that has presented challenges to the students that have come back. Indeed. So, Justin, what's your impression so far of the responses in people drafting their own maps and giving you communities of interest kind of data? Yeah, um, we've gotten about, I would say, I'm going to estimate here. So because we have maps coming in all the time right now and oh. uh, look forward to having additional maps come in through our June 29th deadline for this first round 
for the for our next public hearing. We have about a dozen maps so far submitted by members of the community, and we've seen very different concepts in some parts of the city. We've seen some residents try to keep every planning area intact as much as possible. We've seen residents who've completely ignored the planning areas, except perhaps where they follow a major road or another freeway boundary that they wish to follow. We have seen a lot of variety. I will say that we've seen a lot of variety in the maps that we're getting so far. Questions like, should the Great Park be kept in one district or divided between more than one district? seem to be, you know, an issue that might pop up throughout the entire process or, you know, when we look at the maps together, um, as well as factors or as well as other communities, like should the university community be divided or not? And if undivided, what neighboring communities should it be joined with to get to that magical 51,000 person number? I think that's the sizzler at the water cooler is, you know, who, who tacks on, who do we join? Who, yeah. So not that I mean to be that parochial, but I know listeners are expecting a fair amount of consideration for this part of town. But so the extent that you understand that the city's constituents even just in very well-informed ones aren't aware of this process, let alone the map. How does that concern you that there's a huge learning curve and an awareness curve here? I would certainly agree that there is often a learning curve with this process. And it's something that we consistently deal with. Um, Every city, every school district, every place we go to where we're drawing boundaries especially as more and more cities have adopted district elections over the last 10 years, you know, it hasn't come with the same amount of people of uh, public engagement and public interest that we would have, we often hope that it would. Hmm. Uh, In many cities, uh, we don't get anyone turning out or we only get a handful of very involved already enfranchised city residents who are engaged in the drawing of districts. And part of the challenge is that in many cities that we work with, it's not coming from the community. The community is not the ones asking for district elections. Um, It's coming from state law. It's coming from a plaintiff or a litigant uh, who is trying to force the city into district elections. Uh, Now, Irvine is so unique in having this opportunity to put it on the ballot to have a public conversation about whether districts will serve the community well. But that also means that there's not necessarily the same interest groups um, driving public participation and turnout as we might see in a city with a lawsuit pending. And so it's really incumbent on us, you know, those of us who are engaged in the process already working for the city to do as much as we can to publicize. I'll say uh, one of the interesting things that we're limited in Irvine is we can't do a mass email to all members of the city, uh, or all residents of the city. We have a prohibition in the charter where people have to sign up to receive emails for things like the redistricting process. Whose prohibition was that? What, what, where did that come from? How is that codified? Well, uh, city residents voted for a charter amendment to basically make city email lists opt in rather than opt out. And so unless people specifically sign up and say that they want an email reminder, then uh, the city can't send all of its listers um, basically this information. 
Okay, that's some of that fine print when those propositions are put on the ballot. And perhaps unintended consequences, but it does have a consequence here. Cute. Yes. We are up we we are we are certainly trying to do more with our community outreach and engagement. I know we're going to be at several pop-up events including Pride in Irvine this week. And what we found is that Actually, we get more people wandering by our meetings uh, when we have our community forums who haven't heard about the process but are interested in it than sometimes we get from our mailing list and listers. Well, it makes sense, Justin, from my own experience. I mean, I've had long conversations where I get one question after the next, and I'm, you know, I'm a pretty pedestrian non-expert about this, but it's a lengthy discussion back and forth about that. So I can imagine... That's not a, a five by seven hard stock card that gets you know mailed out and that uh, the, the yeah. interaction at a, a in-person kind of a booth at an event is going to be much, much more productive. So you, yeah. your impression is from those that are working on those, did they find that, wow, we, we did make inroads. This was a very productive kind of encounter. I, I believe we are making inroads. For example, at our last meeting at the Irvine Chinese Cultural Center, a couple of people who showed up who had received some flyers at the last pop-up event, the previous pop-up event, and were interested enough to come to that meeting and learn more about what was going on. And so for people that are following, the time frame is really important. You mentioned the June 29th deadline for, that's the first round. So that there's also, there's the, I'm going to just put out there, the final public input deadline is September 29th. The first council vote on a MAP proposal is October 10th. And then October 24th would be the second vote on that. And it would become an ordinance that this, these districts are created in. So tell us more about other points along the way, but I just want to make sure we, people had that kind of like, that's the end, now moving for, backward, what and people should be clarify, watching besides this week, there's a meeting. Yes, and, and just to clarify that that vote in October will is a vote to put it on the ballot. Correct, not, correct. Not, put not the map on the ballot. ballot. Yeah. And that's for, on the primary ballot, and that the district, that half of the six districts will be elections on the general election 2024 ballot so and let me talk about a little bit about the process because please I do some of these dates um so essentially uh we're wrapping up our first stage of the map process where we're looking at communities of interest before draft maps are drawn starting at that june 11th council hearing we're going to be starting to look at the draft maps if you want to submit a draft map for that again that deadline is june 29th and that's to give us enough time to post them in advance of the meeting. All the maps have to be posted at least seven days in advance of the council meeting to give the community enough time to look at them and give feedback on them. Now, that's not the end of the process. Uh, over the summer, we're going to continue to go out and take the maps around um, and hopefully continue to refine the maps. There's another opportunity for people to submit maps or comments, revisions to the maps by September 29th. And that October, first October public hearing is another chance for the council to review, to look at the maps and decide whether or not there's one that makes the most sense to adopt. We do have a little bit of flexibility in our timeframe. 
So um, that October 24th could be pushed back two weeks or add additional meeting if need be. Because whatever council approves is actually the ballot language that's going to go on the March 24th ballot. If whatever they adopt, whichever map they select, will be placed on the ballot in March of 2024. If voters approve it, November, we would have the first elections. And actually, in November, four districts would be up for election. Four. Okay. See? We're all learning. Three of them for a full term and one of them for a short two-year term. And then two years later, the other two districts plus the short-term district would be up for election. That'll ensure that we have three districts up every two years. Okay. That's how that works. Well, and I want to just ask about, let's put ourselves at the city council meeting on October 10th. Are there any shop Sharpies out on the dais? Are they going to, could there be a potential for like a move around a line? So the great part about the redistricting process as it stands in law right now, or drawing districts, any map that is adopted by the council has to be available to the community to look at and review for at least a week. So if they do want to get out the Sharpie at that meeting and make suggestions or revisions, they would have to bring that map back at the next council meeting for approval. They couldn't essentially adopt a map at that meeting they would have to bring it back and give the public time to comment, to review it, and to decide, um, or, you know, to organize around it. Okay. And did that happen in Anaheim? So Anaheim, there was a couple of cases where the judge, the um, Independent Redistricting Commission of Retired Judges that the court had ordered, and we're talking about the districting here first, um, did something like that. Uh, they always brought the map back for review. And then uh, the council, who, who had final approval of the map, simply adopted what the judges had drawn. Um, in the council meetings itself during the redistricting process, the map that it was actually a community-sponsored map that was received well in advance of the final hearing. Um, and so I believe they added additional meetings in Anaheim um, in the redistricting. So they didn't decide it at the fourth public hearing. It took them five public hearings to do it. So they added an additional one. But the map they did adopt was available for the full seven days before it was adopted. And I noticed that that must something interesting must have been going on because of the noticed the two and a half year process when I was checking around in the background there. Yeah. House. So in Anaheim, um, they went to districts as the result of a settlement. There was a phase that took over a year. Um, that was mostly involved the courts themselves. And the city of Anaheim um, was sued under the federal, or sorry, not the federal, the state California Voting Rights Act. And they had a court fight um, that eventually resulted in a settlement that resulted in them switching to district elections. I think they actually put it on the ballot and voters approved that switch to district elections. And that started a year-long process of drawing the map. So back to this time frame, the the schedule here, as a demographer, would you say this timing right now in Irvine, is this a pretty good timeline given what's going on on everyone's calendar? The great part about Irvine is that we actually have the time and flexibility to study the maps and to do this right. In many cases, 
Uh, if you're switching because of the California Voting Rights Act, you have a 90-day window to make this change. Now, 90 days, we've already spent more than 90 days on this process mm -hmm. here in Irvine. Uh, imagine doing everything, including selecting the final map within 90 days. Our neighboring city of Tustin did that. Uh, they did that in, in 2020 to ensure that those lines would be available to use in the 2020 general election. And it was a rough process um, because that involved many special meetings and completely done over Zoom because of the pandemic. But in essence, it was very difficult for uh, people to have enough time to look at the maps and to study them before adoption. Here in Irvine, we have lots, we've built a schedule that gives us a lot of time to deliberate over these map boundaries and look at the different trade-offs. Um, and I think that is an important piece. A lot of Tustin residents found out about districts when they went to fill out their 2020 ballots. And that's simply a case of, well, they had to finish in 90 days, whether they wanted to or not. And here in Irvine, we have more time to, to continue to get the word out, to do interviews like this throughout the rest of this process over the next few months. Well, I don't envy what Tustin was going through with the pandemic exhausted on every other kind of Zoom session to hold it together their job and their homeschooling and all those other things. And the census data was being collected. I mean, it's just unenviable. So I was just thinking that we had, as the year progresses, that we're going to have, it's not hitting people at a time where they're occupied with some something monumental, that it's sort of spread out and gives everybody a chance to pause, reflect, edify, yeah. pause, reflect. We, we did that very deliberately over the summer here to ensure that the final decision would be in October or early November, kind of in that window between summer vacation and uh, Christmas, uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas vacation. So for those of you who've just joined us, my guest for the full hour is Justin Levitt. He's the demographer that the City Council of Irvine has retained for districting the City Council members that previously were at large, are currently at large City Council members serving and creating six council districts so that we would have a total of six City Council members and one mayor beyond what we have now, four council districts and one mayor and giving us the schedule today. So one question about communities of interest that was raised by another a, a demographer in my brain trust is how, and it's a, it's a political question, but it's a, one for a demographer too, and to some extent, Justin, is how does NIMBYism factor in how a city council member elected from a specific district making policy, you know, that how does NIMBYism affect their decision-making uh, in the broader sort of city-wide goals? That's a really interesting question. And there's a lot of that answer that, uh, you know, it, how, how well does districting solve that kind of concern or that kind of problem of, of, of NIMBYism? You know, oftentimes what we look at and what we see perhaps um, in some cities is that the population of people who vote for city council, who vote regularly in elections, may not actually resemble the city as a whole. And I'm not saying this is true in Irvine, but I just, uh, it's certainly true in many cities throughout the country. 
uh, where those people who vote are more likely to be homeowners than people who don't vote. Um, and we've certainly seen places where a majority of the population are renters or the majority of population live in apartments or other higher density buildings. And the city is dominated by people who are more long-term residents of the city or perhaps are just an easy way to say it, more likely to own property within the city. One thing districting can do is by looking at those kinds of demographics where we see apartments and where we see single family homes, where we see renters, where we see owners, is ensure that there is some districts that are made up predominantly of renters or predominantly of apartment dwellers. Now, I will say that this is definitely something that varies community to community, but it is something that uh, often comes about as a potential community of interest to look at and something that we have certainly seen some interest in here in Irvine, uh, where we've seen um, some differences between village boundaries and planning area boundaries, often has to do with the uh, small apartment complexes or condominium complexes along some of the major roads that may not be in the village, but are in the planning area. Right. Like, I'm, and I, I used to ask a little bit with the state redistricting commissioners that were on this program is, like, wouldn't a Mellow Roos district be a part a community of interest or school districts and that kind of a thing? It's that districts, legislative districts are much larger mm -hmm. than a city council district. But are you oh. seeing that cropping up? And answer that. And then I have a question about the proportion of submissions so far. If they're self-identifying as apartment dwellers or homeowners. So the, the two-parter yeah. there. In terms of the question about whether school districts or other special districts, uh, Melarus districts, et cetera, are communities of interest, they absolutely can be. And I'm using can be deliberately here because every community has different issues that are relevant to that community. Now, the heart of communities of interest is dependent on what we're talking about. And I got to emphasize that a school district might have different communities of interest than a city. A state legislature will certainly have different interests than a city. But whereas, uh, you know, for example, the county might be concerned about other, you know, maybe about keeping their cities hold or together as much as possible, but they see that a big city might just be easier to split because they can justify it by population, that's not going to be something that matters as much in our school district, or as it were in our city. Um, and so I really encourage people to think about communities of interest as what's important at the city level of governance. So issues ranging from streets and uh, quality of local services like libraries to public transportation, affordable housing, you know, commercial prop, commercial structures where, where you, you know, uh, impacts of development, I mean, there's a lot of things that are very important at the city level, and that's what I'm encouraging you to think about for city districting. Now, onto the second question, how many maps have we seen from homeowners versus uh, renters? It's hard. I, I can't give you an exact because not everybody identifies mm -hmm. even where they live within the city. Some of them just say, I'm an Irvine resident and I'm submitting this map. I would say that uh, we've certainly, in terms of the comments we've gotten, the people who've come to our meetings so far, 
it's been about half and half. Uh, we've certainly seen a lot of people who come from um, apartments or multifamily housing. And I'll say not just at the university. We've seen people from uh, other parts of the city who live in multifamily housing as well, um, near the Great Park or near the Spectrum, come to our meetings as well. Uh, we've also have seen a good representation of homeowners and, you know, single family home residents from all, again, all across the city. I think we've had seen people all the way from Northwood down to um, where we had our meeting at the Quail Hill Community Center from, from those neighborhoods on the south. Um, and, and that's what we want to see. And so you anticipate possibly a, a momentum, maybe an exponential uptick of submissions as you get closer to the first round? I think we do. We certainly expect to see more maps coming in as we get closer to our June date. Like I said, we've already had about a dozen maps submitted, but uh, there's certainly room for more. And um, we certainly anticipate that some of those uh, groups or people working together on maps that are still discussing their map that they're going to be submitting as a group, um, probably will get those in closer to the deadline. And I will say that we're going to try to start publishing the maps after this next workshop here next Saturday at the Lakeview Community Center at 10 a.m. Uh, that's, afterwards, we're that's May 27th. I just want, yeah, coming up after this. Yes. Um, at 10 a.m. Um, at the Lakeview Senior Center. After that meeting, we're going to start publishing the maps we have received on our city websites under uh, drawirvine.org under the draft maps page. And uh, we'll be publishing not only sort of each map in a standardized format, we'll also be publishing all the demographic data along with it, as well as your original submission. So whatever comments or feedback you want to make sure people see about your map, all that will be posted on the website as well. And in addition to that, uh, what we anticipate is that a lot of those groups and organizations are going to get their maps in a little bit closer to the final deadline because, you know, it's a great thing to work on these maps with other people. If you feel like you only know your section of the community well, we're talking to people who live in different neighborhoods is one way to do it. Uh, we also have a couple of single district or two district maps that only show a portion of the city. And that's another thing that we love to receive. The one challenge we often run into with this is where people know their section of the city very well, and then everywhere else they just kind of draw straight lines to get the population numbers close. And suddenly you get people from completely other part of the city than you know than you really know and care about the most, kind of taking issue with where you put your boundary line in their neighborhood. Right. And so oftentimes what I've seen is actually a very good district get thrown away at some stage in the process because they did something unacceptable in a different part of the map. For example, and I'll give you a real world example here for this. In Anaheim, there was the issue of maps that divided the Anaheim colony, a neighborhood in the downtown section of Anaheim. And there were a lot of maps by, drawn by people who don't live in the colony or near the colony, who simply found their map rejected because it divided the colony. And they were very upset because they hadn't even intended really to say anything about that part of the city. <laughs> they had drawn their map around some other section of the community. And so um, that's why I often encourage like, hey, those partial district maps or one district maps, 
just you know if you it's if you richer want to, it's richer for you it's, ri it's richer and because we can see what the district is what you really know and care about maybe we can draw that in somewhere else or maybe somebody that knows a different part of the city sees your map and says you know what our two our two districts will work together very well why don't we collaborate Oh, wow. That, you know, I hadn't even thought about a partial map. So it, and I don't know why I would be so presumptuous to think I could play around with the whole city. So the maps will, um, everything right now, all of the comments are being published. So then we'll see then after the Lakeview meeting on the. Right. The, so starting in early June, we're going to be updating that site, uh, the drawirvine.org with the maps as, um, you know, um, Perhaps not as soon as they come in, but, you know, certainly in a timely way, starting with the maps we've already received and moving into the maps that come in during the month of June. And I really want to emphasize right now that there haven't been any decisions made about what the final map will look like and that our role as the demographer is not to tell the council or the community how lines should be drawn. It's to provide advice about the legality of different plans and to hopefully help suggest options that on behalf of people who have not been able to submit a map and only have submitted comments or potentially putting maps together to create that final map out of the different pieces of maps that people and the council like. Okay, so what will the measure look like on the March 24th primary ballot? And I don't know if it sort of mimics sure how other cities did it, but what will it look like? And who gets to write the title for that? It, it's an ordinance once it's codified, but it will be a a city of Irvine a measure. I mean, just walk us through so we, we don't miss this. Sure, this will be an amendment to the city charter to expand the size of the council from five members to seven to establish district voting in six of the seven council districts and to retain a mayor that's elected at large. So those will be the three points that are in the ballot measure. The state asks us if we are going to adopt that kind of measure to impose districts, that a district map be included. Um, and so the map will not be included necessarily in the text of the charter amendment um, itself, but it will certainly be part of the ballot measure and the um, uh, the supporting language of the uh, ordinance. It will appear in our ballot, the map? It will. How is that difficult to put a graphic up like that in a ballot? I don't know exactly how it will appear on ballot the day on, on the day of in the ballot box, but I have seen before in uh, various statements of the vote or register, sorry, the pamphlet you get from the League of Women Voters where the proposed district lines are either included as a map or in text form. Okay, so the pamphlet will carry a map, but the actual ballot, we don't know. The actual ballot will probably just say, do you approve of measure A or not? A measure to expand the Irvine Council and impose district elections. Okay, well, that's that really title, helpful. The title will be uh, determined by the... Uh, mostly by the city clerk working in conjunction with the council. Okay. And has that ever been a problem, that title in previous measures, adopting districts on the municipal level? Well, we certainly have always tried to make sure that the language is generic as possible. 
um, to focus on the real question here on whether or not you want to change from an at-large to district election, and in this case, expand the size of the council. Because we know that in 10 years, the map is going to change anyway. In fact, actually, I think it's nine years now that the map is going to change. So the real question we're posing to voters is, do you want to expand the council and change to district elections? Okay. Well, this is an interesting civic learning matter, civic lesson for everybody to, to move along. In. And I, I frankly think it's one of the most amazing things happening here. And there are definitely the constituents in this very same city are dealing with a lot of March 2024 primary drama too. So I, I, I imagine you're, you've got your eyeball a little bit on that too, don't you? Well, you know, as former U.S. Speaker of the House, Tip O'Neill once said, all politics is local. I really want to encourage people to remember that a lot of your day-to-day -day interactions with government are driven by these choices we make at the city and county level. And that this kind of measure can have real impacts on your day-to-day -day quality of life. Um, so that's something that I want. I would love every resident of the state and of the country to think about um, as they go into looking at those local elections that are on that primary or general election ballot. So as we've said, the May 27th is the next meeting. We're recording this on May 22nd. I'd like to know how far past will you be working along in this process? Sure. I'll say our primary role as the demographer ends with the adoption and selection of the map. However, we'll continue, of course, to support the city in its adoption of district elections. Um, if voters do approve the map, we will continue to help provide the city with information, data, and materials because then we get to start the process of informing voters uh, that they may or will be electing by district come November. So one salient detail that will remain to be determined, you'll tell us when is the ballpark, because I don't think it's caught up anywhere, is it will be the city council's call which of the four districts would be on, if, if approved on March 24th primary ballot, that charter amendment, the city council will have the decision which of the four districts are going to be on the November 2024 general election ballot. Correct? Correct. And so what's the time frame for that? When, when do we have to watch them like little hawks then to when they make that really important call? Sure. And, and I'll say even which district is on the short term is up to the council as well. As part of posting each map, we have to post a suggested what they call sequence of elections. That's a fancy way of saying which order the districts hold their elections in. And so you will see on each map, there'll be a little box that says suggested sequence and followed by which districts would be up for election in 2024 and which in 2026. Now, council can, of course, adopt any sequence at once, and certainly that might be motivated by factors like, for example, which seats are vacant, because with the expansion of the council, there will be vacant seats. There might be a move to put those up for election first. 
there might be voting rights concerns. Wouldn't it make more sense if a district that um, had a majority protected class community be put up in a presidential election year where turnout is higher? Um, and so all of those factors can go into it. If any resident wants to comment on the sequence of elections, and particularly that gets easier looking at a specific map, we welcome that. Um, and that'll be part of the conversation in September and, uh, or sorry, actually starting in July, all the way through October. 2023. Yes, and the, or the ordinance or the language for the ballot that they adopt will contain which three districts will be up for full term election and which one district will be up for a short term election. So I'm gonna challenge you on putting in even tighter, more accessible language what should the general public be, uh, how to express to the general public suggested sequence of elections? That I, I'm sure that that's a heavy lift for people who are still getting on board with this general idea, but that that is a huge thing that's buried in some, it's, it's kind of jargon. How can, is there another way you're all learning how to put that? So <laughs> the term sequence of elections comes right out of state law. So that's what we all been using. I like to just think of it as which districts elect which year or election or, you know, uh, election year of each district. Okay. Because um, that's, same, yeah, that's a, that's a thing. When, right. Because the same as we elect members uh, to the state Senate every four years, uh, we so we don't have an election for state senator every other election or for a school board or for county board of supervisors, council districts will work that way as well. Uh, they'll only be up once every four years. Right, right. Well, I thank you so much, Justin. You have explained so clearly what we need to really understand, how we can get involved and the, the consequence of all this. I'm so appreciative of your time today. Um, thank you for your time as well. Um, if anybody's interested, they can go to drawirvine.org to find out more information. Exactly. Thank you for that. My guest was Justin Levitt, the demographer contracted by the Irvine City Council overseeing the process underway of dividing the city of Irvine into six council districts for the voters' primary approval and then the next general election, if it's adopted in the primary, the general election at the end of the year of the four districts. Well, that is my wrap. And just as a note, we are postponing our fun drive. Stay tuned for details later, late this spring. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening.